This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Wow. All right. It's the first panel of Socialism 2022. You all will hear us periodically do this uh, throughout probably the weekend. Uh, my name is Ashley Green. Most folks know me as AG, and mm-hmm. I am a part of an organization called Dream Defenders. Uh, and we have been doing that for years now. Um, and so take it with you, carry it on in the spirit of Dream Defenders wherever you're at. Uh, and I want to welcome you all into this space. Um, I do want to start with a quick land acknowledgement, and I want to be clear that when we do land acknowledgements, it is not just to name the land that we are currently occupying, but also to acknowledge that we have a lot of shortcomings as a culture and even as a community of leftists and really knowing the history and knowing the value not of just the past, but the presence of indigenous resistance. And so I am not giving this land acknowledgement as an expert, not giving this land acknowledgement as someone who is Uh, perfect at embodying the spirit of solidarity with indigenous people. This is but a small step in trying to reclaim solidarity and sovereignty for indigenous people. Uh, And so uh, I'm going to read directly from the guide. This is the first session. The Socialism 2022 conference is taking place on the occupied lands of the Council of the Three Fires. The indigenous keepers of this land, who through the acts of genocide, deceit, and dispossession were forcibly removed from the founding city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. Uh, We recognize that the nations that lived around uh, and in Illinois, sorry, I need my glasses, uh, and at least the 75,000 indigenous people that live here today. We stand in solidarity with all indigenous people and their ongoing struggle for self-determination and the rematriation of native lands, including in Chicago. So if we can just take a moment. All right, y'all. So what are we here for today? Um, we, uh, you know, tried to think of a very catchy title. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it works. So (laughs) very glad to be in this space uh, with you all as we talk about what it means to build a black mass movement for socialism in the age of white nationalism and Christian nationalism. And there are ways in which we're going to have the panel share their insights, uh, perspectives from dream defenders, perspectives from folks who have been engaged in the black freedom struggle uh, for at least the last decade as the movement for black lives has built out, um, and many times since before then. 
and we know that there's a lot of wisdom within this space, that there's a lot of learnings. And so we're also going to do our best to have a conversation together. Um, and that we clearly have not won liberation yet. And so there's no one single answer. What we know that we need, though, is solidarity amongst the masses and solidarity amongst working people if we are going to get towards freedom. So I want to invite you all in that spirit of conversation to be a part of the experience that we're having today as we talk about what it means to build a black mass political movement. And I'm also going to start just a little bit with our analysis of the moment from Dream Defender's perspective. Uh, and it is one that is living and still evolving, um, as most analysis should. Over the last decade, millions of young people have protested in the streets in response to police murder and state violence. These uprisings spawned several different, mostly temporary formations, each angling to direct, redirect, and lead the spontaneous eruptions. Many of these formations became quite adept at mobilization and communication, and yet decreased emphasis on base building, political education, leadership development, organizational development, or long-term strategy. Sadly, Dream Defenders is one of the only of these formations to have survived the last decade. Our movement proliferated during a time when a very detrimental culture was emerging on the left, spurred by trends and behaviors on social media. Individualism, anti-intellectualism, unforgiving uh, call-out and accountability culture, purity politics, and the tendency to be leadership averse birthed a base of people willing to tear down organizations and leaders and short-term demands that focus less on structural critiques and more on individual level accountability, intermovement conflicts, and the desire to be felt and seen by wider society. The lack of democratic structure and the nonprofit staffing models that many of our organizations have adopted have made it even more difficult to engage in principled struggle together and stay unified in the face of these challenges. This has impacted our public legitimacy and ability to organize widely across working people. During the same period, a broad coalition on the right made up of white supremacists, oligarchs, Christian nationalists, and corporate executives have been working for decades to build political infrastructure to amass power at the local, state, and federal levels. With the changing demographics of the United States, or what we know as Turtle Island, white men are strategizing on how to maintain governing power as they are becoming a minority in this country. And as the left, uh, and sorry, and as left ideas are becoming more and more popular, they are rolling back the hard fought wins of the civil rights movement and the black liberation struggle, the tax on voting rights, critical race theory, our right to choose, only to name a few. Despite our gains in cultural uh, power and mass mobilization, there's currently not a single national national, national black left organization that is actively absorbing young people in mass into shared campaigns and political vision. In the end, the great potential to develop and nurture organic leadership of young black people in cities across the country has not yet been fully realized. Without this, the left will not be a viable force in this country from our perspective, and we stand absolutely no, ch no chance of defeating white nationalism and the corporate elite. We must be as ambitious as our opponents. It is time for us to get serious about building a long-term 
political vehicle and organizing a movement of young black and brown people that can transform our society and take over every level of government. We must move beyond representation. It's not enough to have a black vice president, a sheriff, or celebrities joining our protest, or for BLM to be stamped on every shirt or business. We need redistribution of power and wealth. So that is what we are here to stand in. Uh, and to uh, sort of bring forth that conversation, I actually want to have our panelists introduce themselves. So uh, I'm going to ask you to say your name, your pronouns, uh, and tell us a little bit about what your experience has been building black political movement at the local, uh, regional, national, international, or beyond. Um, let's see. From right to left, uh, all right. How y'all doing? Uh, you could do a little bit better than that. Um, my name is Niall Ford. Um, my pronouns are he, him, his. Um, I'm from North New Jersey. I'm a I'll try to be quick. I mean, my, I started as a minister at 16 years old. Um, I became a minister at 16 years old. Uh, it was really my way of trying to figure out the world. I didn't have a language of like politics or inequality. Um, but that was my way of trying to make sense of everything. And then I became politicized at 21 years old. When I became politicized and I started realizing, oh, the world is really bad and really messed up. It's really unfair. Now I understand why the black kids that I grew up with in the working class neighborhood I started didn't have resources and the predominantly white kids in the suburban neighborhood did. So I got this language. And I got really angry because I felt like the church wasn't doing anything about it. And it was so bad that I was like, I'm not a Christian anymore. I can't be a Christian. Because if God is really about love, and we're talking about how every human being, right, is, is, is supposed to be a child of God, then why do so many children of God not have what they need to survive? So I just didn't even consider myself a Christian for years because I was so embarrassed and so ashamed of the church that really, um, you know, made me, made me possible. And so... Um, Fast forward, um, I did a lot of work in North New Jersey, local work. I went to Ferguson. I went back home to Newark. I started doing this program called Books and Breakfast, which started in Ferguson. Um, I brought it to Newark. It was a very local context. We had zero to no money. We were just taking money out of our pocket, trying to figure out how to get people food. We built an organization called the Maroon Project, which still exists to this day. Um, but just to fast forward a little bit, I talked to you about how I started as a minister at 16. I really got into politics because of what the church was not doing. But then I realized in this moment that so much of moral politics or the way we talk about values is dominated by the right. And I felt called in this moment to really go back home to the church, so to speak, and to be a voice of someone who says, oh, the right does not have a monopoly on what it means to be moral. Does not have a monopoly on what it means, right, to have values. And so that's the work that I largely do with the Dream Defenders and other organizations. Um, and I'm looking forward to having this conversation today. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Asha. 
Um, I live in Organized here in Chicago. Um, I was all right, raised in what I would call a black feminist household, um, both explicitly um, and also in the way that our kind of family and household was structured. It was a place where people could stay, a place where people had, you know, their birthday party, their baby shower, their graduation, a place to come. Um, and that's something that I hold with me in my politics now. Um, and I was politicized um, coming up through the youth arts and poetry uh, community here in Chicago, something that produces a lot of uh, beautiful politically engaged young people here, um, and found my way into the movement through a group organization that I joined when I got to college called Students Against Mass Incarceration, which is a black radical prison abolition organization. We started organizing around private prison divestment on college campuses. Um, and then the summer after my freshman year of college, I was, I was 19 years old. Um, when the acquittal of George Zimmerman happened um, and people took to the streets and that was just an incredibly politicizing um, moment in the world for me and my peers, um, which led us to found BYC 100, um, which was, or is, but was um, an intervention to create a political home for black 18 to 35 year olds around the country um, and would later adopt a black queer and feminist lens as our uh, political and organizing framework we would later later adopt after me arguing with a lot of people <laughs> abolition as our as our politics and recently BYP 100 has adopted a socialist politic too um, are there any BYP 100 members yeah so I think we'll speak a little bit more about just the evolution of, of the movement um, I'm also a co-director of organizing at the centers, which is a youth anti-militarist organization that is really trying to think about uh, militarism and state violence on a, on, a, on a global scale and locally have been doing kind of anti-police organizing here in Chicago, including organizing around defunding the Chicago Police Department um, with a recent campaign that launched in 2020, but also with efforts that, that have been going on since 2014. Thank you so much. Hey y'all, my name is Naima Summers. Um, I am one of the co-directors of Dream Defenders and I'm also one of the co-founding members for the organization. Yeah. <laughs> our people. Um, we're all, you're all our people, but you know. Um, so I was a college student. I, you know, was born to very young parents and not a whole lot of money, took on a ton of loans to go to go to uh, Miami-Dade College, which is a local community college, transferred to a state school, and there I was incredibly ra radicalized. Um, I was raised in Miami, and I'm sure a lot of people know what the politics in Miami are like. They're anti-black as hell, they're reactionary, um, and increasingly more and more fascist, of course. Um, but you know, college was the site of my radicalization. I had teachers, um, taking me to the Mississippi Delta to learn about the civil rights movement. I went to Dockery Farm. I saw where Emmett Till's body was, was dropped in a river, you know, and it was such a formative time in my life. I, I'd known about the civil rights movement. I'd known about the struggles of my parents growing up, but to be transported to like the soil where so much of this had happened was incredibly just it, it, it still shapes me to this day. I still think about it on a constant basis. But so I, I went in 2011, and then Trayvon Martin was killed shortly after. 
in 2012, February 2012. And I had to get out of this learning moment, right? I'm like, okay, cool, I'm learning. I'm angry. I have feelings about all the, the history I'm absorbing, but now I need action. Um, and so Dream Defenders was founded through a series of conference calls for young people in Florida who wanted to act. We wanted to do something about Trayvon Martin. And in April of 2012, 40 people who had been on these calls got together in Daytona, Florida. We marched for three days um, from Daytona to Sanford to demand the arrest of George Zimmerman. He still hasn't been arrested yet. So those people, we went to Sanford, we stayed in, in, in black churches. They were giving us tubs with Epsom salt for our feet because we were marching. You know, we were, we were cared for by the people in Florida. And when we got to Sanford, I think it was Easter weekend 2012, um, we blocked the doors of the police station demanding the arrest and writing all that notes, the different politic of the time. Um, but demanding the arrest of Zimmerman and that he was arrested about three or four days later. So that was the beginning of Dream Defenders. We didn't know we were going to be an organization. We were just a collective of young people trying to mess things up. Um, and, and get justice for this boy that looked like our kin that just suddenly meant so much to us, this little kid that we didn't know, right? I went to school, or I lived three miles from where Trayvon went to school. Um, and so that was the beginning of Dream Defenders, and I have grown up in Dream Defenders. I played many roles. I founded a, you know, a squad or a chapter at the time it was called. I came and left. I went and worked for a United Way for a little bit because I needed some health insurance, you know, I needed some health insurance. And then in 2017, I came back, uh, became the, uh, the communications director, and last year became co-director. So, you know, it's been a journey, but Dream Defenders is my political home. It is where I've done essentially all of my learning. I've branched out here and there, but this is, this is my place of growth and my place of belonging. And, you know, we get to develop young people every day. Shout out to y'all. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's been my experience building Dream Defenders in, in Florida. Hi, my name is Akin. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, his. Um, currently in West Philadelphia, originally from New Jersey. Was good. Um, so yeah, my journey has been a long, weird, twisty one. Um, I got like suddenly recruited into communism in like 16, 2006. Um, there were some like high school teachers that were part of a, a communist party, and they invited me to a reading group. They're like, "Oh, you're so smart, you're really cool." <laughs> <laughs> um, and then it was a reading group. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't reading group. We were reading uh, the paper. Um, so yeah, I was a young black communist. I knew one other young black communist. Uh, he lives in Ohio. I hate him. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, but I didn't really start organizing partially because of that. I felt like really isolated and alienated um, until um, sometime in college. I ended up joining the United States Student Association. Within that, there was a caucus called uh, the People's African Descent Caucus. Um, so I joined that. Like really got to meet like other Black radicals, um, and just kind of like had a sense that like we were that we could actually be something, we could actually build something. Um, and so through like these waves of uh, like I guess like pre-Black Lives Matter, um, just like having people to rely on and lean on in those like really difficult moments was really important to me. 
Um, and those moments really that helped me continue. Um, it's like my commitment and dedication to the work. Um, so if any people from that caucus are here, I love you. Um, but yeah, so that got me to uh, build locally. Um, I guess, well, it got me to do a thing I hated, is uh, join left and socialist organizations and create black caucuses in them. Um, this became an absolutely necessary thing in a lot of ways. Sometimes they didn't work out, um, but I'm a part of Philly Socialist in Philly. We did that there, New Jersey United Students. We built a black caucus there. Uh, we also built uh, something called the New Jersey Students of Color Conference, which brought uh, students of color, mainly black students, um, together uh, across the state, basically as a means of preserving um, just like their soul in the middle of like a lot of what was happening, like up between police murders um, and just like the collapse of a lot of organizations. This was like 2012, um, so people were experiencing some of the struggle of what it looks like for organizations to start collapsing, falling apart, and like go through struggle again. Um, but I feel like that experience really like helped me together. Um, yeah, so on the local level, I worked for the Communication Workers of America for a bit of time organizing in-home childcare workers who are primarily black in Newark. Um, so these are women making about five hours an hour, working 12 hour days, um, and receiving very little support from the state, even though they are technically actually state employees of New Jersey. Um, so my, my experience with black liberation has been from a, a couple of different angles. And finding the dream defenders, or like re, re the dream defenders, I interacted them, I think like around 2012, I was like, let me form a chapter in New Jersey, please. <laughs> They're like, no. Uh, um, so yeah, it's being part of this now and having a chance to really to be in good like struggle with an organization I love and respect that has like persevered and not only persevered but thrived um, and done amazing things is like truly an honor um, and it's just a beautiful place to be in this journey. Thank you. Uh, thank you all so much for those really rich introductions, and uh, I'm going to introduce myself briefly, also in kind of my nervousness around leaving this space. I forgot a couple of housekeeping things, uh, so I'm going to start with the housekeeping things. Um, I just want to make sure that everyone is really clear on what our COVID policy is here. Um, all attendees are required and expected to wear a mask, fully covering your nose and mouth while in indoor conference spaces, including the hallways and meeting rooms. You will periodically see speakers um, remove their mask uh, from the front of the room, and we will do our best to remember to put them back on in between our actively speaking. Um, and the mask policy is in place to protect all of us, especially immune compromised people who we want to make sure that this space is accessible to um, and are at risk of contracting not just COVID, but a lot of different things. Uh, we're coming up on flu season. Like, we protect us. Um, I have already sort of introduced that this will be a conversation and I'll give you all some more sort of like expectations for that as we enter into um, the second part of this discussion. We are going to start first by having panelists answer a couple of more questions, um, but uh, do your best, I think, to be empathetic to one another um, and to be in as much principled struggle with each other as possible. Um, again, this is an invitation to the conversation. Uh, we are not conflict averse, at least the people at the front of the room. I assume y'all are not either. Uh, but we also not here to like, you know, fight. We're here to build. <laughs> we're here to grow and we're here to sharpen. Um, and there are uh, likely translation services that are happening in the room. Um, and so if you hear somebody that is speaking next to you within that context, 
you need to re, uh, shift yourself, feel free to do so. But again, we want to make sure that this uh, space provides as much accessibility as possible. I do see quite a few folks centered towards the back. If you wanted to find a chair, there are some sprinkled around. Uh, I know my back doesn't always do well in that kind of space. So raise your hand if you have a chair next to you. Oh, look at that. Wow. See, everybody can have a chair. Look at that. And if you like sitting on the floor, no pressure. Keep rocking it out. Um, all right, so some basic housekeeping. We're gonna get back into it while folks get resituated. Um, as I said before, my name is AG. Uh, I've been a uh, member leader in Dream Defenders since 2014. Um, I've recently come on board to help support a uh, cancel student debt campaign with Dream Defenders. Uh, and let's be clear, we're not just talking about cancel student debt. Frankly, all debt needs to get canceled and free college for all. Uh, and we're going to start by telling Joe to do what? Pick up the pen, cancel that debt, because the Department of Education does control 94% of all student debt uh, in this country, which is wild. Uh, so, highlight us more about that. We got some flyers somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, uh, I, I don't know how to describe myself because it changes in every space. Um, I'll just be candid with y'all. Uh, I was definitely a teenager that was deeply involved in like GSA culture and like working around anti-bullying policy, um, human rights ordinances and counties uh, back during like the It Gets Better sort of era. Uh, it was probably on like the professional gay pipeline. It was that's where I was going. Uh, I was very, very close to task force. Uh, no disrespect. No disrespect. I'm just saying, you know, I was I was in a I was in a different place at that point in my life. Um, and a couple of things happened. Uh, the first is that Trayvon Martin was murdered uh, about 40 minutes away from where I went to college. And my parents, who were children of the civil rights movement, who had helped integrate schools uh, in the South, my mom got walked into her kindergarten, sorry, her first grade class every day by a U.S. Marshal um, in Athens, Georgia, called me because they knew I was going to be protesting. And they were like, we're kind of scared for you right now. We haven't seen it this bad since we were kids. And this was back in 2012. And so much has changed about the conditions since then, but I remember that really sticking out that like my parents who had seen this and who were as much a manifestation of like the black bourgeois dream, like, you know, you work hard enough, you've a lot of community supporting you, but you really made it to like the elite in Atlanta. Like that was, that was their, their life. Um, were telling me that I needed to be concerned. Um, and at the same time, uh, I started getting involved in a local participatory budgeting project in St. Pete called the People's Budget Review uh, and ended up getting hired by a labor union uh, that was run by a guy like straight off the factory line in Toledo, Ohio. So like I came in very much like, capitalism's not great, but I don't know what else we can do. And he was like, fuck that, socialism. <laughs> and, uh, and those two things sort of quickly radicalized me um, around race and class and coming into Dream Defenders and getting deeper political education around internationalism and around black feminism um, sort of brought me into a space of 
playing journey person across the movement. Um, what I tell people is that I am deeply invested in building a capital M movement on the left. Um, so I've worked in environmental justice, I've worked in labor unions, I've worked um, in civil rights and advocacy. Um, I have worked uh, too many jobs <laughs> um, uh, with the hope that if we can really build a patchwork quilt of solidarity and commitment to one another and are willing to struggle around our politics, that we can contend with what the right has been able to build, which to be explicit for as much as we talk about division, they have created a bigger we than we have in this moment. They allow you to be seen if you turn yourself over to their politics. And we ask people to submit oftentimes to our politics in ways that don't create that bigger we. And I see my work as a part of trying to really combat that. That like, yes, we need ideological struggle at every level, but we also need like humanity at every level. And our species is not going to survive on being right. Our species is going to survive on winning. And so I want us to win and I want us to be hungry for our survival uh, and come to you in that spirit today. So with that, I want to get into um, our first question, which is going to be to Asha and we're going to open it up uh, if anyone else wants to add to it, uh, which is just how would you evaluate this current moment within social movement organizing, um, especially looking at the last decade of the movement for black lives, what's emerged as the movement for black lives, uh, and sort of the rise of a pseudo-socialism through the Bernie campaign. Cool. <laughs> Let's talk about it. <laughs> Not a lot to say. Um, yeah, so this year marks the 10 year anniversary of Dream Defenders. Squad. Um, um, 10 year anniversary of Dream Defenders coming up on the 10 year anniversary of organizations like BYT 100. It's kind of a decade of what I would call my generation black liberation movement that was kind of forged and uh, designed and led by us. Um, you know, 10 years ago, 2013, the popular demands coming out of the movement were very much focused on things like arresting and convicting individual police officers in um, cases of, or individual people um, in cases of uh, police murder and other forms of state-sanctioned uh, violence and killings. Um, we were calling for things like body cameras, which, you know, many of us have an analysis now are just another way to give a little bit more money and tools to the police um, and, and don't actually stop them from killing them. Um, we have uh, moved from that to a place where now in 2020, the popular demand that you see emerge in response to a high profile on camera um, racist police killing is defund the police. And those are radically different orientations to the systems that we're living under and the types of solutions that we need. And I think you know, the political development that's happened in organizations like Dream Defenders um, and others is uh, important to understand, like, what is the groundwork that has been laid that, that even sets us up to have an understanding and language. Um, and, you know, shout out to, to, in particular, the Black Vision Collective in Minneapolis um, that have been doing the work of 
uh, organizing around police budget since I think 2015 in Chicago, folks. Uh, the first time I remember folks popularizing uh, language around the police department budget, and I know this is not the first first time, but in my memory, in 2014, we were organizing around uh, an effort called We Charge Genocide. So you really see the shift in the types of demands that folks are calling for. Um, in 2013, I think it's important to understand that our this movement, movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter movement, whatever we're going to decide to call it, <laughs> um, emerged under our first black president. And so regardless of if at the time we actually had the language for this, what we were doing was creating resistance to the idea that black faces in high places or individual black folks achieving success under our political system or our economic system was going to be the marker of freedom and justice and progress for black people. What we actually see that to be is right a reform of the system, right? To say, okay, people are calling out racism, let's put a few black people in power and not actually shift how these systems operate, not actually shift the reality of inequality that's happening on the basis of race and class um, and these other things in our society. So anyway, um, Trayvon, um, from Trayvon to 2020, that's like some of the shifts that we've seen. Um, between the time of Trayvon Martin and Ferguson, which I think is really the moment where you see uh, the movement become what I would call mass, where you had much larger numbers of people uh, flooding into the streets, engaging in protests. I mean, I was living in New York City at the time, just like protests called for in a uh, relatively spontaneous, but there's always organizing happening behind it, way that, you know, day or few days before that had tens of thousands of people. Like, I had never imagined anything like what I saw at that point in history. Watching the uh, Quick Trip gas station in Ferguson in flames, it was really a moment of expanding the political imaginations, not just of young Black folks in movement, but I think for our generation as a whole. Um, and I think, you know, getting to the point of us even being ready for there to be so many folks in so many different cities responding to that was a year of organizing that had a year or two years of organizing that had happened where you have black organizations being built all across the country um, that were prepared for a Ferguson moment. And I think similarly, a 2020 moment, you don't understand without knowing that in 2015, the movement for black lives released, um, or in 2016, I think, the movement for Black Lives released a policy platform with this framework of invest and divest. So how do we zoom out a little bit from these individual cases of police killing and think about what is the landscape of what's happening here? Actually, what we're seeing is the overinflation of police department budgets alongside the utter divestment and gutting of public programs, of institutions, of resources in Black communities. And this is a little bit of a framework that we can start to offer to connect the dots between individual police killings and the broader uh, economic and political uh, forms of oppression that Black people are experiencing. So you don't get that without, um, you know, the groundwork being laid in that way. Uh, so anyway, I think that that's a little bit of the shifts that we've seen in the, the last 10 years in terms of the demands that folks are calling for. Um, I think what also what we're facing is people are being politicized by their conditions, particularly under the pandemic in a way that is so deep and vast and at scale that is far beyond the capacity of our organizations and our movements to actually absorb, connect with, and build the leadership of those people. Um, and so we're, I think our generation is deeply, deeply radicalized and we're insufficiently organized. Um, and that is both, you know, opportunity, potential, uh, and a real challenge, right? So 
Um, I think we have a lot of folks in the context of, you know, social media, but I feel like I sound old when I, when I talk about that. There's a lot of ways out there that folks can feel like they have good politics or engage politically in the world without actually committing to a political project, without actually being organized or committing to organize people. And I think the challenge for um, our movement at this at this moment is to one, like build on some of those political sh shifts and demands, like go a little bit beyond just talking about policing and think more broadly about our economy. And then also pushing folks that it's not actually just enough to have an analysis. Like our folks are at politically like revolution, but not actually like at step one of what we need to do to get there, which is like be a part of organizations and be down to work with like a couple of other people to do things to build power to get there. So anyway, we'll talk more about that. Thank you so much for that. Do you all, anyone want to respond? And I will say we are a little tight on time, so if you've got additions. Just a couple of words, yeah, no. I'll just say quickly, in addition to that, in 2014, Black Lives Matter, uh, for all of our faults, was kind of an enemy of the state. Uh, President Barack Obama was very clear about what he thought about us protesting in the streets. And in 2020 until now, Black Lives Matter, in certain ways, became a friend of the state. I mean, you see it on streets and cities. You see corporations putting it in their windows. It's on people's websites. And so I think it's really important to track that shift as well in terms of when the state is able to co-op uh, not just the language, but some of the people who otherwise would be being politicized on the actual left to then think that they're part of the left because they subscribe to some idea that Black Lives Matter, which has no actual substance, this is not a critique of any particular organization, but just of the idea that Black Lives Matter doesn't really tell us anything. Um, so I think we need to also track the language of our movements and the kind of way that the state has gobbled up the way we talk about policy. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I think that's actually a perfect segue to you, Naila. Um, I'm really curious, especially coming from a place like Florida, where you have somebody that's auditioning to run the state, um, and and not not losing the audition, um, you know, uh, removing public officials, um, and being very clear about what he is, how you see the state's response to um, to the current wave of Black freedom struggle. Well, um, so yeah, the, the name of this game is, is dominance, domination, and retribution. They keep their foots on our necks, we get up, we fight back a little bit, they kick us, they kick us down very quickly, right? And this, there's no better example than the Sunshine State, my home state of Florida. Um, you know, there's a show, Lovecraft Country, it sort of uh, launched this popular like resurgence of historical memory of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, right? Um, I feel like people have been talking about that a lot on social media. I feel like, you know, maybe a younger generation is learning about what happened um, in 1921 in Oklahoma. And Florida had two of those. Florida had two of those. In uh, 1920, we just passed the, the centennial anniversary, there was the Okoe massacre. 
So the Ocoee massacre was in Central Florida, 1920 election day, black folks in a small rural town organized to go vote. And the entire city, town really, colluded, conspired to keep uh, black folks from voting that day. There's a local labor leader who led folks to the courthouse, to their polling precincts, and 50 people were murdered um, in 1920, right? So that's, that's number one. Two years later, we had the Rosewood Massacre. Similar conditions as Tulsa, a, a, a black town, black businesses, you know, black political power being built, you know, in, in 1923. But uh, another town that was raised to the ground because of the state colluding with white supremacists. And so Florida has this very deep history, and of course it goes back further than that, but Florida has this very deep history of retribution against black political power being built. And fast forward 100 years later, we've got Ron DeSantis in office. Yeah? So, I mean, I call Ron DeSantis the father of the new Southern strategy. Um, he is somebody who has made retribution a part of his docket. Like, that's his, that is his MO. One of his first orders of business in office after he was elected was to weaken Amendment 4. Do y'all know what Amendment 4 is in Florida? In 2018, more than half the state, over 60% of folks uh, who voted in Florida's election, uh, midterm election, voted to restore the voting rights of people with uh, felony convictions. And that gave 1.4 million mostly black and brown folks the power to vote in Florida. It was a huge win. There were organizations across the state who worked to turn people out to get it on the ballot in the first place. It was, it was a huge, huge victory for us. As soon as he got into office, he had the legislature sort of muddy the wind of Amendment 4. He was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not letting y'all Negroes vote. Um, and what he did was he had to make sure, or you had to make sure that your fines and fees were paid off, right? Florida doesn't have a centralized way to figure that out at all. You can go to your local courthouse, they go, oh, we don't really know, it looks like you might have this to pay, but if you got arrested in another county, there's nothing anybody can do for you. So what he did was he added the fines and fees, right? So that was, that was, I mean, the first two weeks he was elected. Then, um, you know, there were several other things, but you really see it ramp up post-2020 after the uprisings for Breonna Taylor, for George Floyd, for Ma Arbery. I mean, mask off, right? Fucking mask off. Um, as soon as that happened, we start seeing Florida's, legis Florida's legislature um, pass voting rights restrictions. There are organizations in Florida, we're a part of a, um, a big coalition with labor, with faith organizations called Florida for All. And in 2020, you see them passing laws where you can't pass out water bottles to people who are standing in the heat waiting to vote, right? He started a voter fraud police force. There are police in Florida whose job it is to monitor voting. Red flag, hello. Um, and then of course we had HB1. HB1 was the anti-protest bill that he passed 
after this. We fought so hard. Tree Defenders fought so hard to get this from passing. But his original vision for HB1 included a clause for standard round. Meaning, meaning, if you fear for your life in the presence of protesters, you could shoot them, right? Ultimately, it didn't make it to the end, but if that doesn't connote, if that doesn't tell you what exactly this vision is for people like us, right? Um, the bill also includes so many ways that if you're a protester that gets arrested for protesting, for organizing, really, uh, getting your voting rights taken away, you could be in jail until first appearance, and who fucking knows when that'll be, right? So this is, this is a setup, right? So those were one of his favorite projects. And then I think more popular um, this year, made it more into the national news, was the Don't Say Gay Bill and Stop Woke Act, right? Ron DeSantis has dubbed the state of Florida the state where woke goes to die. Recently, about two weeks ago, um, he made a comment that basically said, it's us and God versus the left. <laughs> yes. So this is, this is a man who is now unhinged. He is removing people from office. AG mentioned that earlier. We have maybe three or four progressive, uh, progressive state attorneys in the state of Florida. Uh, one of them is Andrew Warren in the St. Pete area. And he refused to uh, charge protesters in 2020. And he also refused to um, prosecute people who get abortions after our abortion ban was passed, also very recently. And he was removed from office. Ron DeSantis removed him from office. He's recently been doing that to school boards. I mean, this place, this place that we organize and live in, should alarm you. Should alarm you. Um, he's also the person who is running, who's going to be eventually running for office, right? So I beg you to pay attention to Florida. And not to say nothing of, of, of all the rest of the shit that he's doing. They've infiltrated our school boards. Florida, there's some counties who aren't doing school book fairs anymore because of the stock book act. There's civil rights teaching that is not being taught anymore. I saw an article today, Pasco County teachers had to remove a safe space sticker for, 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 for young queer children, right? Like, they are hitting us in every aspect of our lives, and these are the people who want to run the country. We knew this, right? There's like a dick measuring contest happening happening between Abbott and DeSantis right now, but DeSantis is winning. And he really, really wants to be perhaps your last president, maybe, you know? Um, so I think the, the thing to take away here is that they're so afraid of us. And retro every time we gain an inch, they're going to want to take a mile. So there is nothing more important right now than to be building. There is nothing more important than creating a foundation, a community of people who will have each other's backs when the shit hits the fan. Because it will. So, yeah. Virgin Moines, organizing people. Yeah. 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 I have a bit of a follow-up, and I'm going to put it to the rest of the panel, and also just invite you to kind of work this in, because um, I can't help but notice uh, our organizing director has on a Too Radical shirt, mm -hmm. um, which uh, directly came from when DeSantis was running for governor, 
saying that his opponent, Andrew Gillum, was too radical, specifically because of Andrew Gillum's relationship to us. Mm -hmm. uh, and Andrew Gillum was somebody who had brought food to us at the Capitol and, you know, was not anybody's hero, <laughs> but definitely, <laughs> which is what it is, but, but definitely um, was associated with us in ways that we've seen um, come up again and again, not just in Florida, but I think in other places where um, uh, black youth organizations have had even small victories, mm -hmm. then people who are associated with that sort of get a scarlet letter. Um, and I'm wondering if anybody else just wants to talk to what the culture of retribution has looked like as we make even the smallest incremental gains around something like dual power um, that kind of takes people away from even saying they need to be engaged at any other level other than revolution. That makes sense. Like, what is the consequence of those retributions and taking people away from trying to build power at every level and saying that there are only singular solutions? I mean, I'm just going to jump right back in. It's like... <laughs> Um, right, 2018 was a big year for Florida, right? We had the prospect of a progressive black governor, right? Again, with the, the representation thing. But Andrew Gillum really was a moment where we had a lot of hope. It was Amendment 4, big statewide effort in Andrew Gillum. And here comes Ron DeSantis from way behind, right? We didn't even think he was going to be the nominee. But as soon as he comes out, he comes out swinging. And... Um, Dream Defenders made its first political endorsement for office in 2018 with the endorsement of Andrew Gillum. And um, it was a shit show from there because Ron DeSantis sank his fangs in. I mean, the GOP was running ads saying that Andrew Gillum was too radical for um, associating with us. They were running news stories on Fox News about the Dream Defenders of Florida who hate the police because we have the Freedom Papers, there are no chairs in there. Um, but, you know, we, 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 we work for a, a world free of police and prisons. And so we got singled out. I mean, Breitbart showed up at our office one day trying to, like, follow us around and ask us a bunch of questions. And we had to set up security measures. We were getting docked. Like, there was all kinds of shit being leaked online about us. Um, and Ron DeSantis, before he won his election, had damn near every sheriff in the state sign on to a letter condemning Andrew Gillum for associating with us um, and, you know, saying that they stand with police. So right out the gate, before he even went for office, he's already setting up a dynamic where all the police in Florida know who we are and they all hate us, right? So, I mean, between that, the anti-riot bill, where we've got the stand your ground measure, we've got some measure that made it that's like, you can hit your uh, protester with your car and get away with it, right? So, I mean, this is a man and this is a politic. It's wider than just DeSantis. This is, he, you know, the whole party is taking cues from this man, but he's setting up a world where he's giving the okay, he's giving the go ahead to, to, to harm people like us, people who do the work, people who are out in the streets fighting for justice. So it's just, we're likely to see more of it happening. And thank you for adding that context. Uh, I think it's really important to note that um, it is not always the state that is chasing after us, but it is oftentimes mm -hmm. the state's permissiveness and green light to send the Christian nationalists our way. Back in 2020, literally uh, folks from St. Pete 
were blasted across Laura Ingram. And the next weekend, we had three percenters and Proud Boys pointing guns at us at our protest. And so sort of these license for violence continue to pop up. And then when we see sort of demonstrations around Cuba that are, you know, supported by DeSantis, oh, there's no such thing as a anti-protest bill anymore. Take over the streets all you want. Um, and not that kind of signaling from the state that violence should be happening against us. Um, I'm going to switch gears um, to what's probably going to be, oh, we got one more. Um, I mean, a lot of you all on the stage have been sort of thinking about, um, been in a strategy space over the last two years, thinking about what a black mass political vehicle would look like. Um, and we haven't heard from you all yet, Akeen, and now I'm just wondering if you can maybe share a little bit more about what are some lessons you've taken away from that? Okay. Um, just really quick, also in addition to that really sharp analysis that Naila gave, I think it's also important to think on a national level. I mean, all the blame is not on Trumpist fascists. The blame is also on corporate Democrats and black politicians. The retribution that we're seeing to the 2020 protests and defund the police in particular is also coming from Joe Biden and the corporate Democratic Party and, and so-called activist mayors like people like Raz Baraka, who, when we protest in places like North, says, oh, this isn't black people, this is white people from the suburbs who are doing defund the police. So I think it's also important that we didn't move like from an Obama moment to a Trump moment. Fascism is on a continuum. Funding the police is on a continuum. And so on a national level, on a state level, and on a local level, across the political spectrum, there's a consensus to fund the police. There's a consensus to fund the military. There's a consensus to give more and more money to Israel. And so I think that's the broader political context that we also have to keep in mind while we watch Florida be our Mississippi. But of course, thinking about Malcolm X, who said America is Mississippi. Mm. And so I think that's, that's one thing. But I want, a king, I, want, I want a king to go ahead, and then we can go back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, yeah, I mean, I've been doing this work for a long time. And it just, it just I, there was a long time of attention of, do we need like mass protest movements? Do we need structure-based, on-the-ground organizing? door knocking, and obviously the way has been both, obviously, for, you know. Um, so I feel like just being, yeah, spending the last few years basically with the Dream Defenders, we've been trying to figure out ways to answer some of the most pressing questions um, of black liberation. Like, what does it actually look like in, you know, this century uh, to build a mass movement that is also deeply grounded in people's actual lives, in people's communities, and like, you're like, you know, like, you wake up in the morning and think about the Dream Defenders um, in a fun way. Um, so, yeah, this, this pro the process we've been engaged in has been one of the most beautiful processes in my life, um, especially after, you know, seeing wave after wave of, um, of our generation, like, really trying to do this work and um, not necessarily being set up to succeed in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of that is that a lot of our movements are housed and grounded within a nonprofit industrial complex and that really limits us. Uh, and I feel like most ships, regardless of your, the nonprofit industrial complex, you know, you're part of the communist left, like once you build your ship and your organization and start sailing, it tends to just keep sailing down the same path it's always been sailing on. Uh, so this process was really trying to intervene and be like, what does it look like 
to, to figure out what is the, the path that we need to actually go down. And so that's involved a lot of conversations, a lot of late night and early phone meetings. Um, and yeah, so, so what we did was like look at like what is a structure that will enable us to not only be a mass movement and a, like a local organization, but will actually allow us to be a democratic organization at the same time. Um, this between, I think uh, the nonprofit industrial complex is like just like very like foundation driven, uh, sometimes like very like executive director driven. I love y'all code directors. I know. Uh, but, but yeah, like really recognizing that there's a there's a clear lack of democracy in a lot of our movements and organizations, and I think that's been part of a lot of the blowups that we've seen um, in the last couple of years is that the members, the base, don't have a voice in most of our organizations. Um, so that was a big part of this process, really trying to figure out what does it look like to try to build something that will correct for that. Um, and yeah, going back to like, I trash the nonprofit industrial complex all the time. It's, I mean, it's also people who've trained me. Um, you know, it's a lot of stuff that I come out of and try to undo. And that's the importance of processes like this, of taking seriously and like slowing down and uh, looking at the building blocks of your organization is because if you don't, you're gonna get stuck into whatever you're a part of, or whoever's giving you money, or whoever like gave you the best compliment that day. <laughs> like, um, so we're like looking. We looked at the structure. We looked at our story. Like, what is the narrative of the Dream Defenders of the Black Liberation Movement? We looked at our strategy. What does it actually look like um, to hold this tension of we want to be a revolutionary organization, a revolutionary movement. We want to end capitalism. We're not here for fun. I mean, we're here for fun. All the time. Um, you know, and, and yeah, any capitalism is the best. Of. Um, so, like, looking at having held the tension of this long-term revolutionary mission, while also being pragmatic, which is a word I hate, because people like <laughs> to, like, use that to, you know, do nonsense, um, but, like, really ensuring that we're built, like, we can do reformist work, because I think most revolutionaries are going to act and look like reformists, I think, in this moment, um, just, like, I think a lot of the bounds of what we're in and, like, how we behave. You can disagree with that, but I guarantee you're doing performance that's work right now. Um, so, um, so like really making sure, like, how do we ensure that that reformist work is actually part of a large revolutionary project? Um, so, yeah, we looked at the strategy, the story, or, um, what's the other thing? Strategy, story, structure, and then the culture. Like, what is it about to actually build uh, a culture that can hold all these tensions? Um, which is, yeah. Amazing to be part of the Defenders for this, and because you already have a dope culture, we already have a dope culture, and a dope culture. So yeah, this, this process has been amazing, and really able to like to take this moment seriously and try to figure out what is our way out of it, and how do we actually very, very seriously win, or how do we build the building blocks for future generations to win. So, yeah. uh, thank you, thank you. Uh, and Um, I learned three things. Uh, how y'all doing? Y'all still with us? Yeah. I learned three things. Out. One is y'all already know Akeen is really funny. Um, <laughs> what you don't know is that Akeen is really good at freestyle. <laughs> and I know this because I listened to him freestyle for like three hours at a Dream Defenders convening one night. So. Oh, that's true. Okay, so that's one thing. That's the first thing. The other thing, the, other thing, the second thing is that um, I learned how to have healthy debate. Ooh. Yeah. So for so long, I was like, didn't want to go on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or whatever new thing is out because it was just toxic. 
it was just, my friend would call me every other day, you know who got in a fight with such and such? And it became kind of like gossip, not political struggle. And so the Dream Defenders really created a space for us to disagree with each other, to debate amongst one another in a principled fashion. And I think that's really important and it's always been a part of our tradition. I mean, thinking about even, even the Negro Convention movement, you know, in the 19th century, thinking about, are we gonna stop, are we gonna smash slavery through moral persuasion or through armed resistance? These were real debates, right? Thinking about leftist pamphleteering and publications, most of which do not exist anymore. So part of what we're talking about is how do we create publics and counterpublics in order to have those kinds of debates that are not dominated by multinational corporations like Twitter and Facebook, so on and so forth. I think Dream Defenders does a very good job. I think this is an example of that. I think Haymarket is providing another opportunity for us to have that kind of public, to have healthy debates. So that's the second thing. And the third thing, I had never thought about organizing beyond like one to three years. I was always fighting, you know, to get some cop in jail back in the day, and then to get like somebody housing or something that was very immediate to make sure the kids in North had local control of their public schools mm -hmm. in 2015. I had never thought about politics beyond like three to five years because I didn't have like, it didn't feel like I had the luxury to. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even think to do that. And the Dream Defenders, shout out to Will Lawrence who helped build the Sunrise mm -hmm. organization. One of the first conversations he said was, we're a part of a historic block. And we need to be thinking for 50 years at least mm. of what does the next 50 years look like for political struggle. And it just blew my mind because I'm like, damn, I can hardly see past the next five years because we're always putting out fires. Mm. But the Dream Defenders helped me realize, well, what house are we building even as we put out fires? Mm. So understanding that we're not just victims of history, but we're a part of a historic block yeah. and figuring out what is our role in this particular moment uh, was, was another thing that I learned. <laughs> And I want to be transparent, part of why you all came into that strategy space was um, some of what I read earlier, just an analysis of the moment of we do not have a black mass vehicle at the national level that really can absorb people and that we need one, desperately. That's God goddamn. Sorry, sometimes you see people, you're just like, all right. Um, and that we are in desperate need of that if we are going to continue to contend with the Christian nationalist expansion that has happened across the country over the last few years. In no small part as a response to some of the victories that we have made culturally and politically around the question of black liberation. Um, and so I wanna thank y'all so much for uh, what you all have contributed so far, and yeah, round of and um, I want to start to welcome contributions. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.